So tonight, we are going to be talking about the day of the Lord, um, which obviously we're doing an exploration of, of eschatology and going through the whole uh, Bible, looking at what the Bible has to say about the end. Um, and if you're reading kind of the prophetic literature, this phrase keeps cropping up, the day of the Lord, the coming day, the prophets keep warning people about. So if you look at the study aims on the handout, we're going to look at the biblical concept of the day of the Lord and how that relates to the wider eschatology that we find in the Bible, and to look at the symbolism and the language used by the prophets when they talk about uh, the day of the Lord. So I thought we'd start by, obviously, if you've read through the Old Testament before, then you've kind of encountered this term hundreds of times, uh, and you've, you've probably, this isn't by any means a, a pejorative statement, but you've probably got some assumptions about what it means and how you understand it when you read it. So I just thought in our groups, can we talk through how we understand the day of the Lord? So what is it? When you come across a passage that talks about it, what do you think it's talking about? And if someone, let's say you're at a midweek Bible study, and someone says, oh, I was reading in uh, Micah the other day about the day of the Lord. What is that? Uh, how would you kind of describe it? So um, I, if I just kind of nominally set five minutes. Okay, so the day of the Lord. Um, why, why are we talking about this? I think it's an important question to ask first. Well, because what we've been doing is that we've been starting in Genesis and working through very slowly, building a full uh, picture from the Bible, not just from a few proof texts, but not just jumping to Revelation. Uh, we are building an eschatology from the ground up. Now, one of the things that happens, so we've gone through Genesis, we've gone through the, the law, we've, we finished Deuteronomy, we started looking at the prophets last time, hence that, that recap, we were in Isaiah quite a lot and some of the minor prophets. And so now we're kind of in this stage. The next few sessions are going to be kind of eschatological themes that the prophets talk about. Now, one of the most important ones is the, the day of the Lord, because, as I said earlier, this, you can't read the prophets without get, getting this phrase again and again and again, this coming day of the Lord that they keep talking about. So it's really important that we spend some time uh, looking at it. Now, I've put a Bible verse on the handout, because Jeremiah in Jeremiah 46 defines what we mean by the day of the Lord. Uh, by the way, it's, I've called it the day of Yahweh. I, if you don't know this already, whenever you see the Lord in all caps in your Bible, that is just a translation of where in the Hebrew it says Yahweh. But, so in case you didn't know that, um, day of Yahweh, day of the Lord, the same thing. Uh, I actually find it's quite a good habit when you're reading your Bible, whether it's out loud or in your head, replace the Lord in all caps with Yahweh, and you realize how often God has spoken about it in with his covenantal name. But anyway, so that day, Jeremiah says, no, no. Um, thank you for interrupting though, Brian. I, I always say, I wish there were more interruptions at Deep Dive. <laughs> That's the culture I want. Um, so Jeremiah tells us, that day, as in the day of the Lord, is the day of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the day of the Lord, a day where God is going to avenge himself. Now, I've called this, this first section the days of the Lord because I think this is really important to understand. Often, I think when the Bible is being read, it's as though, so this is a timeline of all history, and it's as though that big red blob at the end, this is the day of the Lord, the last day of all history, and all those lines coming from this kind of represents where Joel talks about it and when Isaiah talks about it and where Zephaniah talks about it and so on and so forth. They're all just talking about this same big day at the end of history. 
And in kind of a lot of popular Christian either literature or, or sermons or anything that talks about this concept, this is kind of an assumption. Isaiah is talking about the day that Jesus comes back. Joel is talking about the day that Jesus comes back, for instance. But the problem is that when you actually read these things in context, and, and I think one of the problems is we read our Bible like it was kind of all written at the same time, and we forget that actually, bear in mind, Joel was 200, almost 200 years old by the time Isaiah started writing. It, it doesn't make any sense for Joel to be prophesying an event which he says, Israel, this is at your door. Repent now before it's too late. And by Isaiah's time, the event still hasn't happened. Those people have, have long since died. So it's actually, it's more accurate to, to understand that there are lots and lots of different days of the Lord. Now, I've done the one at the end kind of bigger because in a sense, we could say that the day of the Lord at the end of history is like the big dog, the big day of the Lord, the major one. And I think there's something in that, seeing it as that's the one that all the smaller ones are looking to. But now these are by no means kind of accurate in terms of the, like when I've done Joel there, you're not actually supposed to work out what the ones in between, it's just kind of a visual aid. But so like Joel is talking about something that happened in the 8th century BC. Isaiah is talking about something that happens in the 6th century BC. Um, in the New Testament, they prophesy something that happens in 70 AD. Uh, they also talk about something that happens that's yet to happen at the end of time. So over the course of the centuries, different prophets have prophesied different days of the Lord. And sometimes they are a day of judgment on the enemies of Israel. And we'll look at some specific passages in a minute. But sometimes they are uh, prophecies against Israel herself. Sometimes they are prophecies against a family in Israel even. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not, it's kind of like if I say my birthday. I've had lots of birthdays and I will have lots more birthdays. But there's still kind of one... My birthday is still the same definition. It's the day that I celebrate the day I was born. So the day of the Lord is the day where God shows his vengeance and justice on his enemies. But there have been lots of different expressions of that. And I haven't put this in the handout. I don't have a slide for it. But I thought, can we just open our Bibles up to Jeremiah 18? Because I, I just wanted to kind of do a, an excursus, if you like, on why God even does this. Is if someone's able to read uh, Jeremiah 18, uh, verses 7 and 8. Uh, in fact, 8, 9, and 10, even. So 7, 8, 9, and 10. Thank you, Poe. So, so what Jeremiah 18 is saying is the function of prophecy is not just to announce something that is inescapably happening, but 
to be the means by which that people might respond to God. So the reason I'm saying this now is with, when we're talking about the day of the Lord prophecies, it's not like Joel is coming and he's saying, this is going to happen in a couple of years and there's nothing you can do about it. Instead, the whole of the book of Joel, for instance, is the day of the Lord is coming unless, unless you repent. So I would actually say one of the ways that people try and date the book of Joel is saying, well, when did this, because it's a locust plague in Joel, when did this happen? I don't actually think it did happen. Because Joel is constantly talking about the fact that uh, if you repent, if you, even now, it's not too late to turn back, the Lord will repent. And there's no major event of a locust plague happening in, in Israel. So I think the book of Joel is actually a good uh, indication that the Lord meant what he said. If the people repent, he won't send it. So the day of the Lord, if you like, is a threat that God is going to do something unless that people uh, turn around. Um, so it's not just like, the, as I say, the prophet doesn't just turn up to... Like Jonah, for instance, I mean, that's a classic story. He turns to Assyria, to, to Nineveh. 40 days is going to be destroyed. But then, because they repent, it's not that God lied or that God changed his mind or that God didn't know the future. The prophecy was the means of turning them. But nonetheless, if they didn't hear, they would be destroyed. But that was just a bit of an aside. Um, so there are lots of days of the Lord, um, as, as you can see here. As I say, please don't try and work out oh, what's in between Joel and Isaiah and what the two in between Isaiah and the, and the New Testament. I just try to express that there are lots of different days of the Lord. And I think the reality is sometimes you can do it, sometimes you can recognize that something is a day of the Lord thing even if the words aren't there. So for instance, Solomon and Gomorrah. Solomon and Gomorrah, the story is about how these people are, are disobeying the command of Yahweh, and so the Lord shows vengeance and justice in a very specific manner. You giving me a face, Lillian? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. So, so we could refer to that, if you like, as the first day of Yahweh, or even the flood. That's the day of the Lord. Now, it's not until the, the prophets um, that the first time the phrase the day of the Lord appears, but nonetheless, uh, the, the, the kind of if the, if the glove fits, wear it. And to kind of really make the point that they're not all referring to the same thing, I've just put there on the handout that in Isaiah, for instance, there are three separate days of the Lord talked about. So in Isaiah 2, there's a prophecy against Jerusalem and Judah, and it's called the day of the Lord, the day where the exalted will be brought low and the humble will be brought high or made high. Um, and that is called the day of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 13, which we'll look at again later in a bit more detail, there's a prophecy. Does someone just want to tell us from Isaiah 13, verse 1, who is this prophecy about? Isaiah 13, 1. Did you say? Babylon, yes. Babylon. Um, and in this prophecy, in verse 17, it tells us that the Lord is going to do this by stirring up the Medes against them. So, not at all the same thing as what we're reading about in chapter 2. And then in Isaiah 34, there's another day of the Lord talked about. And this time, it's not 
it's actually not specific, and scholars debate who the reference is, uh, but it just says the nations. So, so some people would take that to mean this is a yet-to-happen day of the Lord where all nations will be judged. Some people would tell you that uh, nations is like shorthand at this time for the superpowers, Assyria and Babylon. Some people would say this is just Egypt. Egypt has the nickname, like, the nations, because it's such a kind of metropolitan hodgepodge. doesn't really matter for the sake of our discussion tonight, just to make the point that there is a kind of, as I say, lots of days of the Lord. It's not just a thing. So when, when you read through uh, the prophets, don't assume that what Joel is talking about is the same thing as what Isaiah is talking about or what Zephaniah is talking about is the same thing. And it's amazing how often this happens. So if you get any kind of uh, popular level commentary on um, something like, I don't know, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the day of the Lord that's yet to happen. And people would say, well, we can understand this day or read about this day by turning to Isaiah 34 or by turning to Joel 2. You know, we can understand what's going to happen on this day. Well, no, we can't. They are prophesying different days of the Lord that happened. And we are now reading about a different day of the Lord. They're the same thing. It's a day where God acts in a significant way to vindicate himself against his enemies. But they're not the same day being prophesied. So Joel isn't prophesying something in our future. Paul probably is. Okay. Any questions or comments so far? Yeah, go on. I think, so some people would say that it's kind of like mountain ranges. This is an analogy that's quite common, that, that, that this one prophecy is kind of like, you can see this one mountain that's the beginning of the range, but behind that mountain you've got an even bigger mountain, and then behind that mountain there's an even bigger one, and kind of the range just gets bigger, and that's all kind of contained in this one prophecy. I think there is a big problem with that, because a prophecy then is never fulfilled, if you see what I mean, there's always just so. For instance, um, let me let me try and think of an example on the spot, and I'm going to struggle to uh, off the back of my uh, back of my hand, off the top of my head. Um, okay, so uh, in Joshua, it is prophesied that anyone who tries to rebuild Jericho will build the gate at the cost of their firstborn and the wall at the cost of their secondborn. You read in, in uh, 1 Kings that a man from Judah goes to rebuild Jericho. And it says, and when he built the gate, his firstborn son died. When he built the wall, his secondborn son died. Thus fulfilled the word of Joshua, the son of Nun. If you kind of take that mountain range view, then it's like, okay, well, that's not over. That was just the beginning of that fulfillment. And there's another firstborn son to die, or, or an even greater kind of gate to be built and second son to die. And I think the, the problem is it just makes prophecy a really unhelpful category because now we never know really what's being talked about. There's always something more uh, to do. 
And, and so I think there are a couple of passages where applying that seems to get you out of a tricky spot. But if you apply it consistently, you get yourself into an even trickier spot. So that's not to say, no, Mike, your method's wrong. It's, it's, it's more just saying that there is a, and I also might be misinterpreting you, so tell me if I am. But so to go back to my birthday analogy, my birthdays are all fairly similar. There's presents involved. There's often cake. Well, well, actually, this is a really good example. I don't like cake, so Anna will do some variation on cake, and it changes every year. Sometimes, one time I had a pizza with a candle in it. One time I had a plate of sausage rolls with the candles in it. One time I was, had a burger with a candle in it. So even though every cake is different, there is still kind of like an analogical connection that connects all my birthdays together. And I can probably guess what's going to happen next year because I have an experience of all those other ones. So. Again, I hope this is actually helpful and not just me waffling, but I think it is legitimate to read those Old Testament prophecies as though they give a glimpse of something yet to happen, so long as we're not doing a one-to-one -one application. Because, for instance, in Joel, it's a locust plague that's coming. But in Isaiah, it's the Medes coming to invade Babylon. So even amongst these prophecies, there's a great difference between how they're fulfilled. So if we were to say, well, this is, you know, they're all just talking about the same day. So Jesus is going to come back by a locust plague arriving, and also the Medes are going to come, and, uh, and, and also the Romans are going to come, and also the Babylonians are going to come. So, yeah, does that make sense? Is that helpful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's very reasonable because and this is getting perhaps more technical, but there is this cyclical element of history that we find in the Bible. Um, so things do tend to happen again in the same patterns. So one of the reasons why Paul seems to um, find the story of kind of the exile so interesting is because he seems to think that the same thing is happening now amongst his own people. And again, again I think we might be going into more complicated territory and i no, I'll leave, I'll leave it there. But yeah, no, I think it's very legitimate to read them as though they still have something to say. Um, we don't just cut things from the Bible once, they, once they've happened, you know. So, yeah. Does that help at all? Okay. If it didn't, then come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> okay. Any other comments? Okay. Can we look at Amos 5 quickly? Because I think this is a fantastic uh, chapter. So Amos... Uh, in the Minor Prophets, Amos talks a lot about the day of the Lord. This is where you have to do the, the Bible song in your head to remember the order of the Minor Prophets. Okay, so Amos 5 is this kind of, it's just so good. So if you read the, we're not going to do this, but if you read the book of Amos from chapter 1, it does this kind of thing where if you put a map out in front of you, and if you just note all the places Amos names, he says, the Lord has a complaint against you, uh, Damascus, for instance. And then, he, and then against you, and then he goes through all these places. And if you watch on a map, you notice that he's spiraling into Judah. 
And so the people of Judah are kind of hearing this prophecy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lord's got a bone to pick with all our enemies. Hang on a second. It's getting closer. Hang on a second. And then it arrives on this. And you, people of Israel, you who are supposed to be Yahweh's people. And so it kind of centralizes this judgment on Israel. And in Amos 5, uh, verses 18, notice what it says here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? So the day of the Lord is the day where our enemies get, it's the day where the enemies of Yahweh get judged. So the people in Israel are going, yeah, can't wait, bring it on. But the Lord says to them, why would you want it? It is darkness, not light. Uh, as, if, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Um, verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? So Amos 5 is kind of this real challenge to the people of Israel. Like the day of the Lord would be a thing to rejoice in if you were friends of Yahweh. But the problem is you've made yourselves enemies of Yahweh. Uh, so it's quite a challenging thing, which is one of the reasons why it's kind of it's <laughs> variegated diverse nature is really important to, to appreciate. We, we understand that often it is a judgment against nations. It is against Babylon. It is against Assyria. It is against those people outside of Israel who have behaved wickedly. It is against Tyre in Isaiah, Ezekiel rather. But sometimes it's against the Lord's own people. Um, now, it's, it often happens through foreign armies. So in Isaiah... We just read in Isaiah 13, how are Babylon going to be victims of the day of the Lord? The Medes are the means. So God raises up a foreign army in order to do uh, the damage. Now, sometimes it is creational forces. I've put on a handout there. So, so we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. That is a supernatural intervention where fire falls from heaven and destroys a place. Uh, the locust plague in Joel, again, to mention that one again, is you could say that God has just an, an appointed something that's already there. Maybe this plague of locusts is already there. Perhaps the Lord has raised up this locust plague specifically for this judgment. I'm not saying you need to take an opinion either way. But sometimes it's creational forces. But often it's foreign armies. So the Medes, for instance, in Isaiah 13... The day of the Lord that's spoken about against Israel in Amos is when Assyria come to invade them. So again, a foreign army that are doing the Lord's work. Um, the Babylonians come to destroy Jerusalem. So that's a day of the Lord that's spoken about um, in, in Isaiah as well, actually. And in somewhere else. Zephaniah, I think. No, that can't be. It's too late. Somewhere else. Uh, and then, as we'll see later on, the, the Romans are uh, used uh, by God in the New Testament as the means of which a day of the Lord is executed. So, so far, the threads that we have are the day of the Lord is a day where God shows judgment and vindicates himself against his enemies. A day uh, that is described consistently as a day of gloom and darkness. We haven't actually talked about that much. We'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But the function of this is to either bring Israel to repentance at the announcement of it or to bring the final sentence on them. Often it happens through 
foreign armies. That seems to be the, the chief way that the Lord does it, but not always. And there are lots of different days of the Lord. Everyone got those four points so far? Fantastic. Okay. Now, the last thing I want to say before we move on to the next section is, in the very first deep dive on this topic, I kind of introduced this phrase, worlds die, to make this point that our eschatology needs to be broader than just uh, everything kind of goes until the last day. Because like we, we talked about, when Peter talks about the, the flood in Noah's day, he says the world that then was. In other words, that world ended. And so one of the things that's so significant about the day of the Lord, and we're going to look at this in this next section, is that the language used sounds like it's someone is talking about the end of the world. And that's part of the point, that these days are so significant that it's like this world is dying. So I, I personally don't take this view, but some people, some very respected scholars, would see the fall of Rome in the 5th century AD as a day of the Lord, and they would go to um, Revelation 17 to, to make that point. As I say, I don't agree with it. But what they're saying there is that when Rome fell, that was like the end of a world. It wasn't just kind of you wake up the next day and things just carry on as normal. People had to relearn what civilization was. And, and so there's a very real sense in which worlds die. And this world is a very different world than the world that existed in, say, the 1400s. It, the Reformation is another really good example. It, within 100 years, Europe is completely transformed. That world that existed died. And so the day of the Lord, we should read as end of the world stuff, so long as we understand that by the end of the world, we don't necessarily mean the end of the space-time universe. Yeah? Okay. So with that said, I think it's important to look at the next section, sun, moon, and stars, where we're going to look at the kind of language that occurs in these prophecies about the day of the Lord. So, on the handout, you'll see there I've done a box. What kind of language commonly occurs in Day of the Lord prophecies? Now, I quite like this bit to take a chunk of time because I think it's really worth exploring. Um, I've, these are just suggestions. You don't have to do all of them. You don't have to do just these ones. There are others to choose from. But a good way to kind of dip your toes in the water, these passages, Joel 2-3, to Zephaniah chapter 1, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 30. If you just spend some time... I'm thinking it's probably most efficient if you as an individual don't try reading all of these. If you just choose maybe one or two and then let, let the group kind of tell you about the other ones they've read. So if people kind of assign, well, I'm going to do these ones and you guys can do those ones, then you can come together and say what kind of symbolism is there, what kind of language is used, and together build up a picture of the kind of language that you expect to find in these prophecies. So I'm, I think we probably need about 15 minutes to do this. That's probably fair. So, what kind of language commonly occurred? What features were there? Yes, graphic. Yes, I think we agreed with that on our table. Yeah. Nikki, do you want to share the point you made about Zephaniah 1 with the creation stuff? And notice the order. It does Genesis 1 backwards. 
So you can start at the bottom of Genesis one, and it's like the Lord's just clicking undo. So it's what it's what we call decreation language, um, because when God creates, it seems a, a blessing, and he, he pronounces this is good, and then in judgment, things are uncreated, and it's a curse. Yes. Well, I think that's exactly the place to go, really, Lillian, because in Joel, it says, um, when it talks about the, the day of the Lord and what's happening, it says uh, the land before them, as in this locust army that the Lord is sending to uh, come and take down Israel, it says the land before them is like Eden, but after them is a wilderness and a wasteland. So again, you see that decreation language. Here's Eden laid out for them, and they're coming to destroy it. Um, so, yeah, decreation, destructive language. Anyone notice the, is it going to be a light day or a dark day? Yeah, <laughs> thick darkness and gloom are the words that tend to come out the most. Uh, what's going to happen to the sun? Well, it says about the moon, turn to blood. The sun is going to be darkened, it says. So we get some very kind of th- uh, visceral, I think, do you, thick language, does that make sense? Like, it's, it's, it's very emotive language. If you were to imagine a scene where the sun is darkened, where there is nothing but thick gloom and, and darkness all about you and the, the, you know, the land is being destroyed around you, it kind of creates a very uh, vivid picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll go there in a minute, actually. Um, yeah. Um, but, so on the next question, and then we'll just have this as a group, why do you think this language is, this language is being used like this? It certainly does. Even as people who aren't being announced this by prophets, I mean, we were on our table saying, you know, this is heavy reading, when it's actually not, you know, imagine if a prophet was in the town shouting this out, I think you'd get your attention. Yeah, attention grabbing. Yeah, yes. It's important, I think, to say as also that um, this is an important interpretive point for reading the Bible. The way that language is used and analogies are used in the ancient world are very different from modern day, or at least Britain or European culture. So if I said, for instance, if I were reading Revelation 1 to you and I said that Jesus' voice was like many waters, you might think that it sounds like he opens his mouth and it goes whoosh. But the way that analogies are used and similes are used in um, certainly ancient Greek and Hebrew cultures, which are the ones which obviously we get the Bible from, analogies kind of work like a bit more conceptually. So what would many waters be like to experience? It would be loud, it would be quite overwhelming, and it's a, a noise you can't really escape from. So when it says Jesus' voice is like many waters, it doesn't mean it sounds like many waters. It means you get the same kind of experience from it. Uh, so I think this 
is a really important thing, especially when reading the book of Revelation, because some of the things make absolutely no sense if we try and read them as though they're all true. So again, I mean, a classic example, Song of Songs. You know, when this beautiful woman is being described, has anyone seen this picture that's been made of the woman from Song of Songs? When you take all the similes, your, your uh, neck is like the, 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 tower, uh, of, uh, the Tower of Jordan, and it kind of describes all these things, and your hair is like used flowing down the hills, and someone's drawn this, and it's horrifying, as you'd imagine. But the point isn't that she actually looks like there's sheep falling off her head. The point is, what would that scene conjure in my mind is what's conjured in my mind when I look at her. Now, for us, we kind of have to stop and quite unnaturally think through those things because we don't do similes in the same way. But obviously, if that's how you're taught to, to understand similes, that's what how the original audience would have heard it. So it's important that we don't necessarily read these things as just, it will be like this, but what kind of atmosphere would that remind you of? Now, I want to show you a picture. Now, this is not a picture from someone who was there at the time. This is done 1,850 years later by uh, a Scottish artist. But this is a picture of the invasion of Jerusalem by the Romans. And as I say, he wasn't there but he was a historian who tried to take seriously the kind of things that would have been going on. So you might notice, for instance, that there are armies going all up and around the walls, that there is a fire that's broken out over here, that there's a commander with his troops here. And if you imagine that you're a, c a civilian living inside Jerusalem at this point, and you look up and the sky looks like that, you might understand what the prophets were talking about when they say the sky is being rolled up like a scroll or a day of thick darkness and gloom. And it's amazing how often we use the same kind of language in everyday speech and don't realize that we're doing it. So for instance, imagine you've just gotten really some, some really traumatic news. I've heard people say this, and the world just stood still. They don't really mean that the world stood still, but their experience in that moment was though everything just stopped and it was all centralized on this piece of news they've received. So in the same way, we don't need to force the Bible into kind of these molds where, well, it says the moon's going to turn to blood, so therefore the moon's going to turn to blood. They are allowed to use symbolic language in the same way that we're allowed to say the sun rises. It doesn't actually. We're the ones who are moving. But we're using language from our observation point. So the language is being used, as Anita said, in an attention-grabbing way, in a way that speaks to the human experience, if you like. You know, this is what it's going to be like. So, I mean, again, Joel's a really good example of this because Joel clarifies a number of times I'm talking about a locust invasion. And yet the language that's used, as Mike pointed out, it talks about the sun being blocked out by the locusts as they come over. It's quite unlikely that there were actually enough locusts to block out the sun, but nonetheless, when you see this great swarm coming towards you, you know, there's that sense of dread and fear and all those kind of things. And the other thing that's important to bear in mind is that, as we've seen, these are talking about local judgments. They're not talking about creation-wide things. So Isaiah 13, when it talks about Babylon being destroyed, we need to understand that whatever it says is referring to the day that Babylon's destroyed. So if it sounds like it's too big to have happened yet, we're reading it wrong. So... Uh, so the, the, uh, again, I've 
the, the kind of sky being rolled up like a scroll is, is, um, is an important way to understand this, because that is a really good kind of visual symbolic picture that we shouldn't be saying, well, this hasn't been fulfilled yet because the sky is still out there to see. It, it's, a, it's a symbolic picture that's supposed to evoke a reaction of what's going to happen. And, and as I say, I feel a little bit uh, unhelpful in, in a regard because I don't feel like I can say this is what Isaiah 34 is, is about. Different commentators will say different things. Um, I, I think it does make good sense in the context of Isaiah for it to be talking about a prophecy against uh, Babylon or Egypt. Some people take that view, some people don't, um, but I'll let you make your own mind up. But the point, more to the point is, it's allowed to be talking about whatever it wants to talk about. We don't have to say, well, I don't think that's happened yet. So, day of the Lord, sounds like it's talking about the end of the world, in a sense it is. Uh, big language, all important to understand. Um, okay, yes, Mike. Okay, so again, I'm going to kind of give like an unhelpful agnostic answer. Okay, so if someone says um, that this prophecy is not fulfilled unless the moon actually goes red, I would say I don't agree with you. But at the same time, I wouldn't be saying uh, this prophecy is irrelevant to the moon. Uh, the more the point I want to make is that heavenly objects, sun, moon, stars, so on and so forth, are used not just in the Bible, but in lots of ancient Near Eastern documents to just to refer to kind of some big thing happening. So, for instance, um, there's an Assyrian document where it talks about the overthrow of a kingdom, and it doesn't say it will happen. It says the, the stars fell from the sky. And the stars there are, are symbolic of... Uh, this rain came crashing down. This dynasty came crashing down. So, for instance, when it talks about the, the, blood, the moon being turned to blood and the sun being darkened, I don't think it actually needs to have a reference to what the sun and the moon we see in the sky because those things are symbolic. And we're going to see this in Acts. I mean, I'll jump the gun um, for the sake of it. But I've put there on the Day of the Lord in the New Testament, the Day of the Lord is very much a concept one use in particular highlights its elasticity. Peter quotes the prophecy in Joel about the moon being turned to blood as though this has been fulfilled in front of you because we've been filled with the Spirit. There is no mention by Luke of on the day of Pentecost the moon being red or the sun being darkened. And yet Peter says this has come to pass. So that would lead me to say... I don't necessarily think that there needs to be signs in the heavenlies. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I suppose there's no harm in saying yes, but I, I suppose I'm, 
it's a bit of a cop-out answer because I'm essentially saying whatever helps you remember God's promises. I mean, obviously, the rainbow is specifically said that it's there for our sake to remember it. I suppose I could remember elements of the day I became a Christian and, and think, you know, that's actually a good reminder for that. So I suppose it's a cop-out answer because I'm essentially saying, well, whatever helps you remember what's in the Bible, then that's good. I'm not sure if I'd say there's like a one-to-one, like, that God gives blood moons in the same way he does rainbows so that we remember these prophecies. Is that... Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a book published a few years ago by John Hagee called The Four Blood Moons. Did anyone see this? It was a bit of a trend. It got very popular in America. Uh, just to say, if you know anyone who's reading John Hagee, you remember that phrase, um, friends don't let friends do drugs? It was very popular in the 90s as an anti-drug campaign. Well, it's a new campaign, friend, uh, a new slogan, friends don't let friends read John Hagee. Um, He's one of these American televangelists who is huge on... I mean, I think he cares more about the American government supporting the nation of Israel than he does about the actual gospel. Um, But he wrote this book called The Four Blood Moons, which sold like hotcakes in America, where he was saying, uh, scientists are saying that in the next couple of years there's going to be four blood moons. Well, guess what Joel talks about? Blood moons. And that's what Acts talks about. So, I mean, this book is basically saying, hey, guys, the rapture's happening in a few years. Let's get ready. Now, that was that released in 2016. Any apology from John Hagee? No. Any? Oh, I got that bit wrong. No. He's made the money. He's happy. But aside from actually attacking the man, the, the point is that Whenever you hear that there's going to be blood moons this year, please do not think that there's any prophetic significance to it. Um, I know that's not what you were asking, Mike, but uh, (laughs) yes. Okay. As I say, if there are any other interruptions, do do it. Um, So the day of the Lord is still very much a concept in the New Testament, and I want to spend a bit of time on this, and I'm actually going to be preaching about this in two weeks, I think. Um, anyway, so this is kind of like a, a taster. Uh, or is it three weeks? I don't know. I'm going to be preaching on this in the next few weeks. So, so the day of the Lord, we've understood that there's lots of different days of the Lord, that it's spoken about often in the same language, that what sounds like end-of-the-world language is often local judgments, um, so on and so forth. And I just mentioned that Acts 2 a bit where Peter... I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that on the day of Pentecost, there's no judgment per se there's no destruction and yet peter quotes that 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 uh, point about this prophecy has been fulfilled this is what joel said would happen on the day of pentecost so it, the day of pentecost in a sense was a day of the lord i mean it obviously stands out as one it's quite unique but nonetheless it's really interesting Well, there is a switch in Zephaniah 3. So Zephaniah 3, there's a big turnaround, and, and God talks about how he's going to restore his people and bless all the world and stuff. But Joel's really interesting because it's judgment on Israel, 
but then they turn and repent, and so God never turns, sends the judgment. And then the next day of the law that's referenced as a judgment on the nations. So it moves from Israel being the subject of the judgment to the subject of the blessing to the nations being the subject of the judgment. And what's really interesting is when that Joel 3 thing, Peter says it's fulfilled, it's in the context of the nations not being judged but being blessed. Because on Pentecost, all the nations, Babel is undone. They can understand each other again and they all draw, come in. It says people from every nation under heaven is what Luke writes. So it's, it's almost like Acts... It's not it subverts Joel. It's not like Luke is disagreeing with Joel, but it's almost seeing like there's like an extra chapter that was never written. But anyway, that's a bit of a, a bit of a detail. But yes, that's. Um, Yes. Mm. Well, and, and just on that, I would say loving the Jews is a good thing, but John Hagee actively discourages the Jews from being evangelized. He says that they'll be saved in another way. There is nothing more anti-Semitic than not giving the Jews the gospel. Well, that's, that's yes. No, I'm not. I'm not at all correcting you, Joyce. It's just I've so I read his. If uh, sorry, this is a very, very, very quick detail. His book in defense of Israel is very much kind of built up as a, I love the Jews, and then he says in it basically, can we please stop evangelizing these guys? They're God's people in a different way, and it's like, this is not love. This is not demonstrating the kind of Christian love that we're called to demonstrate. Um, okay, let's, let's jump back in. So, when we're reading the Old Testament, we shouldn't assume that every day of the Lord is talking about the same day. We've seen that. The same thing is true in the New Testament. The day of the Lord gets talked about in the, in the New Testament, and again, we have an, often an assumption that it's talking about the same thing. Now, I've kind of done this little table there. <laughs> the, the question marks represent my own... Um, indecisiveness, exegetical indecisiveness, because on most days of the week, I think that 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 to 11 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, the days that I don't get my, my Weetabix, they're the days I get it wrong. I've done two question marks and a, and a paragraph break on 2 Thessalonians 2, because on some days of the week, I think it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I've put 2 Peter 3 in its own box because it basically just depends on what side of the bed I wake up on. Um, <laughs> so I, I would implore you not to be as indecisive as me. But just to say that... So what often happens is people will read 2 Peter 3 and it talks about the earth being burned up, a new heavens and a new earth being established, and um, uh, this being the day of the Lord that we're waiting for. And people go, well, there we go. It's this world being burned up. It's a new heavens and a new earth. Easy. And I think 
the problem is if you if we read as as I've seen as we've seen in the other day of the Lord passages, it uses very powerful end of the world language to talk about local judgments that change a state of things. And there are some very, very good exegetes. So does anyone know who I mean by John Owen? Yeah, so, so John Owen, widely regarded as the greatest theologian that England ever produced. His sermon on 2 Peter 3, he says this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Peter Lightheart has written a very good commentary on 2 Peter where he makes the same argument. And, and so I'm not, now I'm not saying I'm convinced by it. I'm just saying that I don't think it's as simple as I'd like it to be where I could just say, oh, well, this is talking about the, the, the last day, and, the, and it's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I think it could be either. Uh, but So let's just look at some specific ones. So if we turn to Matthew 24, as, as Brian referenced earlier, we're now, we're now there. So could someone just read Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2? Thank you, Brian. So Jesus leaves the temple. He says, you see all this? Well, the disciples say, look at this, isn't this amazing? And Jesus says, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. Um, the last, or the end of this, well, not the end end, but in Matthew 24, verse 34, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the beginning of this prophecy begins with Jesus pointing to the temple and saying, this is going to be destroyed. The end is Jesus saying, this is all going to happen within a generation. Now, the question that actually launches it, now, the reason I didn't include this in what I asked Brian to read is because it gets a bit complicated. So Matthew 24, verse 3, it says that he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the reason I think this is, you've got to be careful with this is, if we say what well, they say, and the sign of your coming, then it must be about the second coming. The problem there is this is the disciples who ask the question. And do we at this point in Jesus' ministry think the disciples have a well enough developed theology that they know that Jesus is going to die, be resurrected, ascend to heaven, and then eventually return? I really I don't think so. Um, so I, I think it's unlikely that when they say, what's the sign of your coming, they mean, what's the sign of your second coming? And so Jesus, just to put that out of the way, Jesus then answers their question. And the reason I want to look at this is because if you look at some of the things he talks about, um, he, so he says that there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes. Um, now, if you turn to verse 29... Could someone just read verses 29, 30, and 31? Actually, maybe just, maybe just verse 29 and 30, just for, to keep it simple.
Okay, thank you. So the reference there, that's taken from Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, of the sun being dark and the moon not giving its light. So this is a day of the Lord prophecy happening, which, as I say, Jesus concludes by saying this is going to happen within a generation. Now, the, the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and the earthquakes, these things aren't particularly difficult because in the period between Jesus giving this prophecy and Jerusalem being destroyed, there was indeed lots of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and so on. So those things are quite easy. The thing that we might find difficult is, well, what about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and, and so on and so forth? Now, we've gone through all the Day of the Lord passages in the Old Testament, so we should see these are talking about times where there's a local judgment where often the Lord uses a foreign army to bring about his purposes. So when we understand, ah, in 66 AD, from 66 to 70, the Romans were besieging and destroying Jerusalem, setting the city on fire. You know, there's, there's lots of um, artwork which I think captures that scene well. Obviously, I showed one of them earlier, but I think it's, it's, it's actually becomes quite easy to see how these things did indeed happen within a generation. Now, I'm not saying that you have to necessarily go away convinced, but I, I, ho- I would hope you see that this is where it's coming from. And then in Luke, which is obviously what we're going through as a church, um, Luke makes it even clearer, because Luke doesn't just kind of say, he doesn't quote the Day of the Lord things, he says, sorry, I know I jumped there quite quick, um, but in Luke 21, verse 20, Someone just want to read that? Luke 21, verses 20, 21, 23, and 24. In other words, Luke 21, verse 20 to 24. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the cities of men, and let those in the country not go into the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Dreadful it will be in those days, saith the King, nation never. There will be great distress in the land, wrath among the people. And they will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Great. So Luke is really clear. This is Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. Again, it's that kind of day of the Lord uh, language. So we're actually limited from taking this beyond this fulfillment because that so if this was for all the world then it makes no sense for them to be told to flee to the mountains from Judea you know if this is talking about Jesus second coming for instance what's someone in Brazil going to do with that warning to flee to the the mountains outside Judea as I say, but this, this tonight isn't just about these passages. It's just making the point that when we understand the day of the Lord background, we can see how these things make sense in a biblical uh, kind of context. Um, one, one scholar put it really well, I think. He said, the problem with these passages is that the bits which are intended to be read as symbolic are taken with an unrelenting literalism, and the bits which are intended to be read literally are disregarded as symbolic. So when Jesus says this will happen within a generation, well, by a generation, he kind of means, you know, like hundreds of years. But when he talks about the sun being darkened, oh, no, no, it's actually going to be darkened. You know. 
Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, we don't have to go deep on this necessarily, but it's, it's, it's just to make the point that Paul talks about a, a coming day of the Lord that is going to happen quickly and suddenly. As I say, I, I'm not kind of saying I'm absolutely 100% convinced this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I think it's likely, um, but you have it specifically called the day of the Lord. Um, now, one of the reasons I would think that is because in 1 Thessalonians 4, he is most definitely talking about the day of resurrection, the last day where Jesus returns. But this is where our English Bibles are a little bit unhelpful, because the first words in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, now concerning, this is what we call in grammar a disjunctive marker. In other words, Paul is saying, right, now moving on to something else. So if what he's talking about in chapter 5 and chapter 4 are the same thing, then he's used the worst possible grammatical marker to show it. Um, you know, as I say, it, it's, we could translate the beginning of chapter 5 as, moving on, uh, and the things he talks about, there is peace and security, which is a Roman phrase they were using at the time. Everything's fine, there's peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come. Uh, but also the fact that Paul specifically is talking to the people in Thessalonica as you need to be ready for this. If this is yet to happen, then this warning was kind of irrelevant to them because, hey, guess what? They just died and never went through it. Anyway, we don't need to spend too long on this, and I'm already spending longer on it than I wanted to. Um, we won't go into 2 Thessalonians 2 because that's far too much to try and cover. We won't go into 2 Peter 3 except to say that don't be too quick to make an assessment on it. The only comment I will make on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is what Augustine said. So if you've ever read Augustine or know about anything about Augustine, he was a very confident interpreter of the Bible, so much so that if anyone disagreed with him on anything, he would basically act as though the gospel itself is at stake. So one of my favorite examples, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Jonah, the plant that grows up, had been translated in the Greek Bible as a gourd. And Jerome, who actually read Hebrew, unlike Augustine, said, gourd's not a very good translation. I'm going to use ivy. And the, the exchange that we still have today between those two, Augustine basically thought that the gospel was at stake. How, how on earth could you think that it's an ivy? It's definitely a gourd. Anyway, to get to the point, Augustine said about 2 Thessalonians 2, I confess I have no idea what the apostle is talking about here. So I think if Augustine was willing to kind of say, I don't know, uh, I, I'm going to take the same, the same stance. Okay, um, we're not going to go through all the ones referenced there uh, on the day of resurrection, except to say that in all of these passages, it is 100%, no doubt, Paul is talking about the day at the end of history. So let's just go back to the picture we had earlier. So the big red blob at the end, Paul is calling that day where all people will be raised from the dead, the righteous to everlasting life, the wicked to everlasting shame and contempt, as Daniel says, as the day of the Lord. And the interesting thing that he does is he calls it the day of the Lord Jesus or the day of Christ. Now, bear in mind, in the Old Testament, day of the Lord is a translation of day of Yahweh. The fact that Paul is calling this day the day of the Lord Jesus or the day of Christ, 
he's making a statement about Jesus in, in that. Uh, but nonetheless, so to go back to what we were talking about earlier, Mike, yes, the, the day of the, at the end of history is the day of the Lord. So we can, in a sense, read these ones in the Old Testament and the New Testament as somehow pointing to that. The day of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was destroyed, has some kind of relation to the day at the end of history. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I, I, I'm happy to, to stop there. Is everyone else happy to stop there? Any comments or questions to make? I'm just aware of the time. Do feel free. I'll let the tumbleweed roll. We're good? Okay, let me do a quick recap. So, we saw that the day of the Lord is a concept in the Old Testament that refers to lots of specific events. That the language used to describe it uh, is highly symbolic and exaggerated. I, I don't like the word exaggerated if it's... If it, don't hear me saying exaggerated as if I mean the prophets don't mean what they say. I just mean that they're at license to use the same language that we use. So, you're driving me up the wall, you might have said to your children. You weren't sinning when you said that, even though they weren't actually driving you up the wall. So, yeah, we're, they're allowed to use the same language that we do. And the New Testament uses the same imagery to talk about two events, the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the day of resurrection at the end of history. So these are all days of the Lord. That's how it relates to a wider eschatology. That all good? Great. Thank you for coming, guys.